Welcome to a Talk Hockey Radio special. The first draft of this introduction was about five minutes long, as this is one of the most incredible people I've ever known. Hopefully I've whittled it down to enough time, but you'll keep your attention and do them justice. Today I'm speaking with a genuine legend of the game, a trailblazer, an incredible player, and a true leader. She's a Euro Hockey Hall of Famer, an icon in the LGBTQ plus community, and one of those horrible people who is lovely, intelligent, and multi-talented in sport. Not content playing and captaining the Irish hockey team, she also represented the Emerald Isle in the cricket pitch, and was a very capable tennis player. She revolutionized the FIH digital communications and has recently launched her own podcast series. She is so popular, a stadium of 10,000 people once sung a happy birthday. Welcome to the one and only Nikki Simmons. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And such a nice introduction. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> Have I done all those things? <laughs> I think so, just about. <laughs> You've been a busy thank day. you so much, Simon. That was lovely. <laughs> That's right. How are you doing, Nikki? I'm great, thank you. It's a bit dark here now. We're, we're recording the evening, but in a bit, it's gone a bit Irish weather as well. It's raining again, so we thought we'd come into spring, but I don't think it's quite here yet. <laughs> no, soon enough. And are things easing up over there now in terms of restrictions? Yes, yes, it's much better. We're not back at the office yet, but we're you know the shops are open, restaurants are not open yet, but they're takeaway um still um, and yes, some things are still happening. I mean, skiing never stopped. I didn't go because I I, I was trying to be very careful, um and and sticking to myself and and just a small bubble of people. But yeah, Switzerland's pretty good at the moment. Not too bad. Uh, well, for, for the listeners, um, in case somehow he hadn't quite gotten onto it, Nikki uh, played for Ireland, uh, played for 12 years. I think we first met around 2007. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit through your journey into the national team and sort of the highlights that you had in your career there. Sure, no worries. Yeah, I think it was about 2007, right, in Manchester where we met first um, and met quite a lot often after that, which is really great. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, my... My first introduction to hockey was my mom. My mom used to play hockey and I used to be on the sidelines with her. Um, I even played with Stephen Butler, another well-known Irish hockey player. Apparently we played on the sideline when our moms played together, which is kind of nice story. Um, but yeah, I, I really started playing properly in, in, in school. So I went to Wesley College in Dublin um, and that's where I got my inspiration from my hockey coaches there. Unfortunately, both both the, the, the two most influential for my school, both of them passed away recently in the last couple of years. But Joan Blackmore and her husband as well, they, Ken, was, was the principal of Wesley and Joan played for Ireland herself. So she was a massive influence for me. And I always used to touch base with her when I went back home. Um, yeah, and I through, played through school. And I loved it. And as you mentioned there, I also played tennis and, and hockey. So I have another few influential uh, coaches there in school who, taught me to play cricket and actually one of them Janice Walsh played for Ireland and she used to tell me you know why are you running just hit the ball <laughs> and make a four so I I was always that type of player whack the ball and, and that's you know we'll probably talk about that later in my cricket career um but yeah then I played underage under 16s on Ireland under 18s and, and then under 21s as well and I eventually got selected um for an Irish senior training camp um in when I was 17. Um, so I was quite young um, and got brought, in, brought into the team then. Um, had a very tough coach, but I think that is something that has always stood to me. I think in my any part of my, my life now, I, I think that's it was a very tough time, but I think 
nothing can can be as bad as that so I, it's really kind of good for my career now as well um and yeah so then i i got my caps but back then you know we, we didn't have this roll on roll off stuff so we were very much a team 11 and then you had your sub bench but maybe sometimes people would come on and then you'd also have 17 and 18 who were out in the stand and i got my first cap and then Two years later, I got my second cup. So, so, so basically, it was a long, it was a long haul, around two years, I would say, um, until I made my way onto the team, and and I got got lucky. I think a lot of people get a break where maybe someone was unfortunately somebody was injured or couldn't go to an event, and you kind of get your break and you've got to grab it at that moment. And I did. I started. It was New Zealand. Olympic qualifiers I'll never forget that trip actually I was starting as right back so so you know very much it was how my coach expected us to be up and down that pitch so I was probably one of the fittest I've ever been with, with that those couple of years playing right back for Ireland um but yeah and then my my career progressed a couple of coaches changed but I still hung in there and um had to constantly learn and develop my game and make sure that I was sticking up with everything and I was going to stand out I think that's one thing to to the listeners to to think about is if you're if you're starting a career try and find things that will make you stand out so fitness was one and then I was I decided I want to be a drag flicker because there wasn't many female drag flickers so I took that upon myself to to do that so that was something that made me stand out as well um and then yeah I kept playing and managed to get 200 cups and and 208 in the end never managed to go to a world cup or an Olympic Games, and we got close going to London. I think you have a lot of photos, or you were there for that event um, in 2012. Uh, very fond memories. I mean, a great, a great tournament. Uh, as a team, I felt we were really ready. We were playing so well. We were ticking off the boxes, and but it was a funny one. We had to win all the games. It was like a round robin, and then we had to win in the final as well. So we lost, unfortunately, in the final, but um, which was devastating at the time. But I've now recently learned to kind of let it go <laughs> it took a long time um but yeah i think all those experiences have made me who i am now and um i would never give it back you know obviously i'd love to have gone to a world cup or olympic games but i still managed to play a long time for ireland um and i relish all of those memories and all the people i played with during that time as well so Yes, that's a quick overview of my career. It lasted a long time, um, even more if you count underage as well. But yeah, eventually retired when I was 31. So there you go. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I do remember uh, the Olympic qualifier very well. I mean, was it Audrey, I think, had broken her jaw and then still yes. did? Yes. Um, and I mean, obviously, I, I have um, an affection for the Belgian hockey scene, but I felt you were... <laughs> Very unlucky uh, in that tournament, from what I saw of it. Um, we yeah, at the last hurdle. Yeah, you were, yeah. I think you're being very diplomatic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was an amazing thing to witness, and I think for a long time the Irish squad just seemed to be just whatever, just didn't quite make it out mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of quite crossing the line, unfortunately. Um, and of course, recently that's now happened. But yeah, you had some amazing players. That I, that I saw you playing with um, mm-hmm. and some fantastic hockey on show. Um, I just, I found it interesting that you, I've heard it, you, you said it in podcasts as well, um, finding something that becomes a speciality, something that sets you apart right mm-hmm. from the get-go. Um, did you get much support in that or was it very much just get cracking by yourself, practice, practice, practice? 
Um, a mixture. I think I, I took it on myself. I remember my grandfather coming with me on extra days on Sundays or extra time. He'd drive me to the hockey pitch to practice and to learn myself. But then I think when people saw I was taking it very seriously, I did start getting a lot more support, especially as I mentioned, it wasn't really a thing that girls did um, back then. So I was trying to, you know, push that boundary and, and try and go, well, why can't we do it? You know, so so I tried to learn myself and I wasn't the most amazing drag flicker. Don't get, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't think that, but I do know that it was added something different. And even if it wasn't always direct to, to, to be directly shooting at goal, you, you had that skill to kind of pass it off to other people to make deflections. You know, there was something special in that skill that you can you can do a lot with. So I think that's that was really great. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we were speaking earlier, and you, you were part of the the leadership group. And I can remember seeing you, and you were you seemed certainly from the outside anyway to be um, able to lead in the different ways. And you could, you know, if, if someone needed an arm around the shoulder, you could do that. If someone needed to have a hell scared out of them, you were very good at doing that as well. Um, how how did you sort of about defining what you wanted to be as a leader, and then and then going ahead and doing it? That's a really great question. I love how you put it there. Yeah, I did. Uh, my personality was quite different, I think, um, on the pitch, especially. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, some people think that I used to get loads of cards like it was but it was they made it up because I didn't at all. I, I think if I look back on my record, I didn't. But I was quite vocal. Yes. Um, and but I think encouraging at the same time. I mean, there were times when we did have, you know, difficulties with the team. And, um, you know, I'm not, not afraid to say that we did have one moment where we had to sit in a room together. And it was actually before the qualifiers for, for London. And we we just had came to a point where it was just, the, you know, the, the ambience was a bit off and we weren't playing well. And we sat in a room and we just had it out. We, we said things, we said what we felt. And that changed us completely as a team. I think that's why going to that qualifiers, I really thought that was it because I think we had had that moment where we went, actually, you know what, we're all here together. And if we tick these things off, if we do our jobs right and we help each other, we'll qualify. And I think that's how I felt the whole tournament. Um, And it was really pity that it didn't quite happen because I think that was the moment that I felt such a team together. Um, But as a leadership, I, I think my style was just, to go out and, and be the best I could be and and hope that was going to inspire people to be the same. I think in club as well, I was never the captain in my club team, but I think just by playing well, um, it was like at one stage, Gene Muller, our coach told me about, he, he felt I was like the temperature gauge. So if I was playing, which gave me quite a lot of pressure because it meant that if I was playing well, he felt the team would play well. And it's not just me, but I was influencing people you know, around me and then we were butterfly effect, right? So if I was playing well, then the midfielders would play well or whatever it was, and then it would butterfly effect to everybody. So I think that was kind of how I was a leader, just trying to play well. Um, and I know myself, I had many ups and downs and I know it affected the team. Um, and looking back now, I, if I could have fixed some of those, it would have been great. But it was just my personality at the time, how I felt. You know, I had a lot of personal things in my life as well that I guess um, affected it too. Um, and and I used to take it out on the pitch, right? So I used to, if I, especially with my growing up and how I grew up. And, and I just, um, 
used to come out on the pitch, my frustrations with that. And sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. Um, and that's why I stopped playing tennis <laughs> because I used to get really angry at myself. So, yeah, so there was there was a bit of that in, in me as well. But I think that made me fiery as well. Um, I think you saw that probably on the pitch that it, it gave me an edge, you know, and and I have some coaches of other teams um, like Gordon Shepherd. I don't know if you've read the book that I was a chapter of, but I mentioned Gordon Shepherd from Scotland because he used to be like always at me and always like on the sideline and it made me play better, which he did, little did he know, it made me, it pushed me on. And I think, so I love that kind of tension and that made me always play better. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> you, you, I mean, you, you said there about the emotion side and definitely, I mean, as a photographer, you were a great person to shoot because... <laughs> you did not hide it and it was <laughs> amazing shots of you rolling your eyes and being like oh come on man <laughs> when uh Myers did something you didn't necessarily agree with or you're know, bellowing at a teammate to ship the ball off to someone quickly and, and not try and dribble out of the fence um but also yeah just sort of the more relaxed side as well it was great um but one of the first times i i interviewed an umpire a long time ago um was I asked them, you know, who do you actually enjoy umpiring? Mm. And you might be surprised to hear yourself and Minky Boy were the oh, two yeah? you came up with. Yeah. And yeah. I asked why. And they said because you were fair and you're respectful and like, yeah, you'd you'd criticize them and it was fair enough when you when you did it or you do it in the right way. And I just wondered mm. I guess it probably relates a little bit to what you're doing nowadays on which we'll get to in a bit. But um how do you how do you handle those conversations with people where you need to keep them on side? Mm. Uh, you can't just, you can't completely let rip an umpire 15 minutes into a match. <laughs> um, how, and how do you manage those relationships to keep them positive in the long run? Because it's always obviously the same umpires you see, you know, at each tournament. Um, so what, what are your top tips for managing difficult relationships like that? That's a great question, but I think it's a, you know, it's a respect thing as well. I think hockey in general, um, we're quite respectful. Well, I, I haven't watched hockey now for a long time, so maybe it's changed. But I think also the gender side of things, I think, is, is a bit different too. But I think hockey in general is quite, you know, respectful, a bit like rugby. It's part of our it's part of our, our DNA, I think, as well. Like, we can have it out, but then we can have, you know, off the pitch, it can be different, and you can build that relationship um, as well. And they understand as well. We want to understand each other because they know we're under a lot of pressure on the pitch as well. Um, and we don't necessarily mean to lash out, but, they understand it, especially player or umpires who have played as well. I think that's a really great attribute for them if they have played and they've gone into umpiring because they understand a bit better. Um, so yeah, I mean building the relationship away from the pitch as well. So away from the situation, take it, take it away. Maybe go up and talk to them after and say, hey, can we discuss it? Um, it's the same in business now. Like, um, you know, we're all under pressure at different points, and and if that happens, then try and take it away from the project. For example, don't go into the conversation, talk about the project, take it away and, and discuss it separately. Um, and I think we do the same as athletes we did. I mean, we, we definitely had good relationships away from the pitch with the umpires. Um, I think many do. Um, and and I think it's got much better, especially in hockey recently, that there's been a lot more of that, you know, talking and umpires talk. That's another thing as well. Sometimes when I remember there was one or two that didn't say anything and that just made you even like, more annoyed and it's like why don't you just tell us you know have a discussion that's the thing and a lot of the work I'm doing now is having difficult conversations it, my work with uh, diversity and inclusion is how to bring up those conversations and I think that's the best way for it to be ironed out is to it's it's not easy <laughs> but 
try and bring up those difficult conversations is the best way to do it. Cool. Um, so something you touched on a little while ago was, was briefly your, your time in club hockey. Um, yes. And you played for Loretto, uh, which is arguably one of the most famous clubs to come out of Ireland, um, mm. consistently in the European competition. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your, your time playing club hockey, what it meant to you, because obviously you're, you're, you're known probably widely speaking in hockey for, for your Irish, uh, mm. your, your time in the green jersey. But also I think it's worth touching on Loretto because you were there for a long time. You had a lot of success. Um, and it's, as yeah. I said, it's probably one of the most famous clubs in Ireland, let alone in Europe, in fact. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously not everyone listening can see, but I'm smiling about it, thinking about it. And it's something that I really do miss. I mean, hockey, I had to retire in the end. Probably I just didn't want to continue up physically I, I wasn't great either but I also wanted to continue and stop at a at a level where I was I didn't want to be the one that played on forever more in the club but club level I just yeah I loved it I, I joined Loretta when I was like very young in, in school they came and asked me and a couple of clubs interested um but they just stood out for me um and at the time there was a couple of Irish players there um, Avril Copeland was the goalkeeper. She played for Ireland for a bit and she helped. I was coaching with her in the summer camp and she asked me to join along with Tom O'Donoghue, who's a, who was the coach at the time. Um, and yeah, I just loved it. I felt like a family straight away. Um, we had great, great banter straight away. And I think uh, especially um, funny thing is it's a, it's it's Loretto. So it's a, a Catholic club, right? So I'm, and I'm Protestant. So we always had this banter between us. Like I was the one, the token Protestant on the team. Like, and it was, it was a really funny situation, but I, I just felt welcome straight away. They really were great and um, looked after me a lot. The coaches, we, we always had great coaches as well. They really made sure that we had that. And, and, and the teammates around me as well. I had other, like um, Katrina O'Kelly, uh, a few other players were playing for Ireland at the time. And they just influenced me a lot to, to continue to play. We had a really, really strong team from the start. Um, we won quite a lot. And we always had our battles between the clubs, other clubs that were there. But yeah, I mean, such fond memories um, of, of, of Loretto and, and Dublin and um my my family, my granny, my granddad were were the granny and granddad of the team as well. So it was always a um such a welcoming club, and and obviously when we had success, it did help as well. Um, but yeah, I, I love it, and every time I go back, I try and and try and go and say hello, even though it's a little bit awkward for me now because I've been gone for like eight seven years, um, and I kind of disappeared. Um, so it's a little bit awkward for me, but I know that. You know, I, I keep in touch on social media as well and, and try and support them that way. Um, but yeah, definitely huge fond memories. There's some pictures up there in the clubhouse as well that I love to go and see when I go back and remind me of, of the great times we had there. So, yeah. And I, I was just thinking about some of the players that you've encountered there and also the Irish squad. And you said you haven't watched much recently, but then when I was looking mm-hmm. through the Irish squad, you've probably made a massive impact. Like Chloe Watkins, Nikki Daly, Nikki Evans, Katie Mullen. I could go on, there's loads of them. Um, so do you realise or do you think about the impact that you'll have made on those players, when, particularly as you were getting towards the end of your career? Did you think mm. about passing the torch on and, and trying to help shape the future? Yeah, I mean, I, hopefully I did influence them and I think I did. Um, but, you know, I've never spoken about it. But yeah, I, I mean, there was constant you know, helping through fitness trainings. I remember uh, a couple of players, uh, Nikki Evans, a couple of times, like was, you know, it was really, really tough. We had 
lot of tough fitness sessions. At one stage, we were um, centralized. We had a centralized program and it was tough because we were all still kind of working or in college. And then we were training a lot and trying to get all that touch points together. And it was difficult. And yeah, I think in that way, I tried to keep encouraging them and, and especially then players who were in Loretto who maybe were just on the underage teams for Ireland. I always tried to offer them extra help, or like tips and tricks of, of what we were doing on the national team, brought it back to club. So I always was trying to pass over that knowledge. Um, and I hope I did. Um, I, I mean, as I said, I've never had that conversation with them, but I would hope that, yeah, just my influence of how I played and how I trained and how I um, how I went about myself. I think hopefully that that did pass over to them. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Um, <laughs> now you, you've said uh, elsewhere that you you managed to move on from the initial sadness of not making it to the Olympics, but going there as part of the FIH gave you that experience um, of, of seeing it a little bit and understanding what it's like as a tournament. Mm. Um, that said, what does it mean to you and I guess also to the wider sport in Ireland about the fact that women have qualified now for the Olympics? Oh, it's incredible. You can see the difference in, and I just feel so sorry for them now because they had got there and then it just got extended and and especially players like Shirley or a couple of others that, you know, near their end, Nikki Daly even said to herself, like, it was hard, I'm sure, to go, oh, God, I've got to wait another year you know uh, you know you really want to go but like can I can I actually physically do it because you've got it in your mind that you're gonna stop at a certain point you know I had the same I thought London was where I was gonna stop as well and then I pushed myself for one more year and it was a really tough year so um for them I think I mean it's incredible and the sponsors have come on and and hopefully they will stay I think I've read there they will stay and continue to support them um and it has changed completely I think some of them now have other sponsors, personal sponsors. Um, you know, we, we always tried our best to get personal sponsors. I had a few, but not everybody was able to. And I think now it showed that uh, more people can start having, having sponsorships themselves as well, like cars and things like that, that, you know, they're small to probably a footballer, but like it's, it's something that has changed and really it's brilliant and I love to see it and I think it's amazing and hopefully it will continue um, and they'll continue to get the support. But the whole system, and I've spoken about this on other podcasts and, and webinars is in Ireland in particular, it's like yearly, you know, it's not. And what we do is we do a cycle by four years, right? And yeah. if it's every year, it's changing how much you're getting. It's very, very hard to plan, to understand, to, to know what to do. And you're constantly holding your life back especially as the players to know will I work can I survive without working or can I survive with just a part-time job for another year for another year because you're never getting the same amount um from the government as well so it's it's really really tricky and, and I hopefully now with some more sponsors on board it's 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 changing and it's going to stay like that but I mean we went through the same I had at one stage we were getting money you know monthly because we had money in, in Ireland at the time and we got a lot of money. So we were able to get, we had like three levels of athletes. So if you were at the top level, you were getting like, I think it was 500 a month, I think I got, which really helped because it just cut into my rent or whatever. But then it went away again. So it's like up and down, up and down, you know, and, and I hope that it doesn't go back down again this time. I hope the momentum continues, especially for women in sport in general. It's just such a great thing that, that we've got a team now that are going, to, especially a team. And it's different, you know, you can really, as an, as a, we have individual athletes going to Olympic Games, like 
quite a lot, but now it's a team and it's something different, more relatable. I think people can go, actually, I can be part of a team like that, you know, um, whereas a sprinter is something completely different, right? Um, so for women in sport, I think it's hugely inspiring. Um, and hopefully we can also get our other team sports to the same level, like football, for example. I mean, they didn't qualify for the Euros, which was very disappointing, but hopefully the momentum is there to, to help them as well. And I think that's what the Irish hockey team should think about as well. It's not just them. It's it's other sports in Ireland that, that need to grow as well. So. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've said a few things, which to be honest was news to me. I didn't realise that you had, you didn't have like a four-year funding cycle like we do in Great Britain um, mm-hmm. or that there could be potential divisions in a club based on religion, which of course is just me being incredibly ignorant. <laughs> of, of, uh... Well, no, there wasn't any division. It was just a bit of fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, you could have been there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing to think that. And, and, and then it just goes further to show how amazing the achievements were in 2018 when women got into the, into the final. Yeah. Uh, to have done that with such inconsistent funding. They had to pay to get there, didn't they? They actually had to pay. For... That's just ridiculous. I remember watching the final and seeing, like, you know, the Dutch had, like, live GPS data. They had, like, headsets connecting the entire bench all over the stadium. And then the Irish had a clipboard and shouted. Yeah. Um, and it just shows the disparity and makes you think, what on earth could they do with just a little bit more support? Um, yeah, I mean, there was times where we had to, we had those sort of things like GPS tracking and they do, I think they do, but like, I think at times for us over the years, it was like, we had it sometimes, we didn't have it and other times, it was whether we could get it from the Sports Institute or whatever it was. And and then we had to be very strategic on what we spent our money on. Like, is this something that, okay, it's really expensive to buy this whole set of GPS, but is it something that's going to get us to the next level? Yes. Okay, let's buy it. But like, we had to be strategic in what we were spending our money on like even hockey balls like just things like that and you talk like Roy Keane talks about the footballs that where where it was at the World Cup in football uh, and he gave out about the footballs not being good enough like we were yeah we were buying like strategically buying certain things you know and I think everyone watching listening with who plays hockey will understand <laughs> how much a hockey ball changes everything <laughs> and the differences in the quality right and um, i remember working for the fih i was like no don't get rid of those hockey balls they're the best things you can do when you're playing international hockey um but they're so expensive and you know those sort of things we had to think about and, and you shouldn't have to right you're playing for your country um and you're doing it for the love of it for most of the time you should have at least the basics there for you i mean at times we had physio support maybe from the Irish Institute but it was in a place which was where they are now where their central program is but I had to work so it was like oh yeah you can have an appointment at 10 in this place called Blanchestown and I'm like I I work on the other side of the city and I have a job so how am I meant to go over there at 10 a.m for my physio um that was the only way to get it for free. So there was, yeah, there was many, many things. And I think the program has changed a lot. I can't speak about it now, but um, hopefully that is that the basics are there because that's what you need really. Yeah. Do you think for some people listening to this, I imagine it's quite startling to hear that <laughs> you have to decide, like, do you go for like one training hockey ball over another or do you just go for Cookerborough Elite, which obviously costs mm-hmm more fortune do you think these sort of tough decisions help prepare you for business in terms of knowing where to spend money and time to get the best value creation yeah for sure i think that's something i'm realizing in the corporate world that the spend is an incredible waste of things as well you know um 
yeah, I think it's just, and it's not, it's all companies, I'm sure. They just don't think about it as much. Um, and even in projects now that I'm working on, I'm like, can't we do this this way? Or can we do it internally to save money? And they're like, but we don't need to. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, you know, it's funny um, how I think. And I think we always are like that athletes, no matter what level. I think we're always a bit like that strategic and what's best for you and how to value your time as well. And I think that's something that not everyone's used to working with me as well is that you know I'm I'm quite good at my time I think I'm, I'm trying to be anyway and strategic about it it's difficult when you get put into a corporate world where it's completely different but I try and stick to my values because I know that I'm strategic with my time and how I where I put it um and I can get things done um whereas I think sometimes in corporate there's a lot of time wasted like in meetings and things like that and it's like why are we in another meeting it could have been this or or any time to do that and yeah so I think not just money wise but your time and and they're the great things you can bring with you with you as an athlete I've been talking a lot about that I did a podcast the other day or a webinar the other day about that um how athletes are great for business because they have that mindset as well, uh, strategic and and being able to make many things out of very little. <laughs> so I think that's something for sure that I bring to the corporate world. Um, so no, not everybody listening to us would have known before the introduction that you used to play <laughs> cricket as well for Ireland. <laughs> yes. Do you mind just explaining how that happened? I know you've said it on other podcasts, but for the benefit of, of those new... <laughs> <laughs> explain it <laughs> explain it yeah so well I played I played cricket from a young age um in school actually and my grandfather used to play so it was quite a uh, you know a thing we used to do in the garden anyway um and with my uncles and stuff um but yeah school was I suppose where it happened we had cricket in the summer cricket and tennis and, and hockey was just the winter until then I played national team underage when then kind of hockey took over in the summer too a little bit um but yeah i used to love it and i played i think i played under 17 or under 19 ireland i can't remember which um and i played club um for railway um which i loved it was awesome so that's kind of railway union actually wanted me to play hockey as well but at the time loretto were were much bigger better club at the time now railway are really good now but i think it was a moment where I felt I needed to go to Loretto. So that's where that happened. Um, but then I, I I just took a break one summer. We didn't we didn't play, I think it was a World Cup potentially, or a big event that we didn't qualify for. And I just we had a bit of a break from hockey and my girlfriend at the time played cricket for Ireland and um so she roped me in to play for club in Pembroke in Dublin to so just around the corner from where I was living. And I loved it. That summer was amazing. It was going around to the cricket club, you know, hanging out. So we had no hockey. So it was like really cool. I was still doing some training like to keep fit, but it wasn't like we had any training, hockey training. So I really enjoyed that. And and I kind of went back to my roots where my, my coach from school was there as well in Pembroke. Um, and yeah, so again, it was like, okay, I don't have to run. Brilliant. I'll just whack the ball. So I started like just playing, like loving it so much. And I had a good eye for the ball, clearly, as you know, as well, from being on the on the, the line at the, in the goal as well for short corners. So I loved that part of it. And I guess I was pretty fit, too. So I was running around the pitch, sliding around the place. Um, so everyone kind of took notice. And, and then I was asked to play for Ireland to come to training and then I ended up going to South Africa on tour with them, um, which was an amazing experience as well. I really enjoyed it. But cricket, 
I loved it, but it was really different, like nerve wise when you're going to play, like you're, you're in a team, but you're on your own at some point, you know, you're going out to bat and you feel you're a part of a team, but then you're going to bat, you're on your own completely. And I felt it was really quite a different experience and very nerve wracking. I don't know how, yeah, that was one of the things I didn't like so much about it. But once you got into the batting, it was fine. But yeah, I loved it. I had a great time in South Africa. Um, still continued to play for a club when I came back, but then I just couldn't do both. So I had to go back to hockey. <laughs> so that was the end of that. And also it wasn't as professional as hockey at the time. So I, I just felt I wanted to continue with hockey. Um, but they're much better again now, saying we go back to talking about women in sport. Cricket in Ireland is getting way, be- way better for women. Um, there's still the differences. Um, it's still quite evident now during COVID that the men in men's sport in general are continuing and women's sports not continuing. Um, some some of their tours were cancelled, which is very sad to see. Um, so yeah, so you can see the differences again between COVID between men and women in sport, which is really sad because I thought we'd moved on from that. Yeah, uh, definitely with the, the cancellation of the women's rugby world, one well, cancellation postponement yes. uh, was I think predictable, but I'm still disappointing to see that it's okay mm-hmm. for one to go ahead but not the other. Um, and yeah. I appreciate levels of professionalism are different from one country to the next but yeah. fact remains it's, it's what's happened isn't it um yeah. and it's happened in other sports as well um mm-hmm. but did you take many lessons from playing cricket into your hockey or vice versa yeah for sure again i love this knowledge transfer type of thing and you can see in my podcast that i've just started is it's all about knowledge transfer and i love doing in the office as well bringing over my experiences and i did that with cricket i think i brought a lot of the more professional side of things from hockey especially fitness into the cricket team and, and now they're they're really great right now and um i think that was the start of the change for them at that moment um not just because of me but it just in general i think they really realized okay we actually got really good cricket players how can we be better and and it always came down to the support it always does like players can't you can't continue to train professionally and not be paid and not have the support so there was always that problem in cricket um but then we just had a mindset i think the mindset changed for the team and and they wanted to be much better they could see they were good and, and that they could compete and and the mindset changed and yeah i brought a lot of of that with me and again it was just by being fit by you know, running faster, people were influenced, I think, um, rather than me going, you must do this. You know, it was more just me being there and and, and, and playing well and, and running and, and being fit, like I said, um, that really helped, I think. And do you, uh, you mentioned the psychological side of it, like how you're part of a team, but you're also on your own. Do you mm. think it'd be exactly like that for our goalkeepers? Because <laughs> that's effectively what they are, isn't it? Absolutely. I think so. It must be quite lonely, you know, a lot of the time, especially if you're playing for the Dutch team. <laughs> a lot of the time, <laughs> you're on your own, right? Um, so, yeah, I think for sure that must be something that you could they could have a cross um, intersectional discussion about <laughs> cricket batter, batters with goalkeepers. Um, yeah, it's a funny sport like that. And your your team, even when you're in the field, you can be out at the boundary, and then you're like, "Hey, hello, I'm here." Like, and you know, there's a there's a wicket, and you're like, "I'm not running all the way into the middle to go back out again." So yeah, there's quite a lot in cricket where it's it's quite lonely, but but still a team. Um, but I did love it. I really enjoyed it. I love like the feeling when you hit a six or a four or even a sneaky one. It's it's a really great feeling. I loved it. Yeah, you you mentioned with obviously like things have improved 
in terms of women in sport, in terms of access, in terms of coverage and so on. Um, it's clearly nowhere near where it should be, but it, mm. it has improved. What do you think, as a, with your sort of your old media hat on, what will mm. be the thing that makes people finally start doing it different and, and start giving it the, the attention it really deserves? It's a really great question. And I think the thing is, it goes up and down. Like I said, like I remember years ago, we did have quite a lot of coverage, like even that qualifying tournament that we talked about earlier, RTE sent the crew over, you know, we did have coverage. So it's not that it's never been there. Um, It's just how the, I think it's how the general public take it and receive it um, is a big thing as well. And you're fighting a lot with so many different sports. Um, It's very difficult, especially in Ireland, like you're fighting with GAA as well as rugby and all the other sports that are there. But rugby have done it. So there's definitely, you know, you can definitely do it. Like uh, rugby has changed so much dramatically over the last years. Um, So why can't hockey do it? I just don't know what the answer is for that. It's like, because it's such an amazing sport. And I think the one thing is bringing people to watch it live makes a difference because I did that when I worked for FIH and I was at the World Cup. I invited some people that I had known through different things like digital, you know, events that I've been to. I was like, hey, I'm in London. Do you want to come and watch hockey? They're like, I've never been, but yeah, of course. And then they were like, whoa, like this is amazing. Like seeing it, seeing it for real. That that's that's how it, it can change. So live events really I think can change it. But then you're talking about media. Um it's very it's going to be very hard to get, to catch up with some of the sports that are way ahead of the game like basketball now as well. Like some of those big sports have now gone international where NBA were always ahead of the international federation, but now the federation have caught up and they're like doing some amazing things and they've made those connections between such a massive league like NBA to international um, which they didn't have before. And once they got that synergy, everything changed for them. So in hockey, I don't, I really don't know how we can develop that. Um, but it, it's, it's, it costs a lot and we don't have that much money in, in, in the sport. So, which is funny because we do think like some, some clubs do have money, right? In the Netherlands, for example, and you wonder why it's not spreading um, and why you can't get a global company to sponsor hockey like that was one of the things i was in the fih we just don't know why we couldn't seem to get a big sponsor um, and i was involved in that in particular but i just couldn't understand it because <laughs> every time we brought someone like a sponsor to a match they were like wow it's amazing and then it's like okay so when are you gonna give us some money um but it never happened you know never quite quite got there so i don't know where the blockage is um but yeah i mean women's sport it's it feels like the athletes are starting to take control of it you know you have this i can't remember the name now but maybe you can put it on after on the podcast um of of this group of girls in america this group of athletes that have set up their own media company now for women's sport because they're sick of it and they're sick of the this probably conversation you know how do we change it how does it change um so they're just taking it to their own hands so maybe we need more athletes to do that and i see the same in business with the diversity and inclusion so i've set up this employee resource group and for me that has changed everything dramatically the company is starting to see what what the employees want and i think it's the same now hopefully with the athletes taking control of us this is what the athletes want um this is what the athletes need and we'll probably talk about it later but how i moved out of working in sport was because of a little bit because of that as well athletes were never rarely at the center of of what we did apart from what I did and apart from what a few people really valued in our in the FIH, for example, 
but there was always another thing at play. There was always another political part and there was always something else that just messed the whole thing up and it was really sad to see. And it's happening. It happens everywhere in sport. And there's a reason why I kind of stepped away for a while because I just couldn't see it anymore. I didn't want to see it anymore as an athlete um, working in sport. I just felt it was just, yeah, there, there's other ways that I can maybe influence from the outside more from than from the inside. And I think hopefully I'll be able to go back to that in the future. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there are elections coming up for the FI. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Might be a bit late. <laughs> well, no, I think it's definitely true. Like, they, I, I know there's a lot of communication coming out from the FIH saying that they have athlete engagement and they care about the athletes and their priority. But on the other hand, the calendar is insane uh, and puts an enormous strain on their bodies. And for those who aren't lucky enough to play for basically Belgium, Germany, the UK, or um, sorry, Great Britain or um, or Netherlands, mm. they're not going to be earning enough through hockey to be able to, to meet those sorts of demands. Um, I think you, <clears throat> you touched on... Um, the live event side of things. And obviously we've had the pro league. Were you with the FIH when pro league started? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I was there with the, the whole process of it developing and working with, uh, yeah, I was there before it all started. Um, and yeah, and when it launched and then I, I stopped after that. So. What are your thoughts yeah. on pro league? And I was always, I was always backing it, you know, I, I'm very loyal as well. I think, you know, that from working in my club and, and things like that, I was very loyal to FIH and what we were doing, I believed in as well. And the people who were there doing it at the time that they've all gone. So even before it launched, they were all gone. So there was like Kelly Fairweather. I used to, you know, really, really, I did feel he was really looking for, for the athletes and trying to, they were trying their best to do something which is, I think a lot of people maybe don't understand. We were trying our best to, to find a way away from the Olympic Games and trying our best to put out the game in a better form, in a better, to attract the, what we keep talking about, the sponsors and, and things like that. And maybe it wasn't the correct, in the end, it wasn't the best thing, but there was definitely intention to make it better and bigger and stronger and away from the games like I said because we always rely on the games and we can't do that like we, we literally that's what happened we had the hockey revolution because we uh we were about to be kicked out of the Olympic Games and what do we do if we're kicked out of the Olympic Games we're we're, we're kind of screwed right because now even we have that game we still can't you know get get sponsors even though we have the Olympic Games so how do we develop that and how do we grow and I think that was the intention was that and maybe the the format and the way it is but we also had to trial it with with the top countries who could pay for it right to see if it could it could grow legs and grow momentum and, and i haven't looked for you know i haven't looked since i left really to be honest but um yeah i know there's a lot of controversy about us and and, and the traveling and, and all of that it, they were trying to fix something but i think potentially it was just not the way it was done maybe it wasn't the best way um, and yeah, I I do think having a longer term event like your normal traditional, say a nine a nine day tournament, works well because you get the atmosphere. It's the same sort of infrastructure to set it up as it is mm. for a single pro league match or for a double header pro league match. Mm. Um, some 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 countries have made it work. I mean, the, for Great Britain, most of the tickets were selling out. Uh, for the Netherlands, again, I think it's the same sort of case. For Belgium, mm. it wasn't bad at all. Um, obviously, this is pre-COVID. Um, mm. And then, but then in other countries, it was pretty much empty stadiums everywhere. So maybe with some tweaking, it can work. Um, 
I think just on that, I think that came down to political decisions as well, um, potentially. I mean, I don't know because I'm not there anymore, but what some of the countries, it, it was where they were putting the games was, you know, it was this sort of, let's try and get everyone in the whole country to be able to see Pro League rather than the first year. Let's try and put it in in cities where we know that it will be sellout. We know that people will be there. And they did it another way in other countries where they went to cities where there's no hockey and there's no no real development of hockey. Um, so I think that was a mistake as well um, in some of the countries. Um, that would be my my point of view on that. When the countries where it didn't quite work, was they were trying to showcase hockey all around the country rather than focusing on where actually, you know, let's go to one city for the first two years and just have it in the same. And then it, people know it's there. Fans know it's there. They, they know how to get there. They know how to, you know, it's going to take two hours to drive. They know where to park, you know, instead of moving it around all the time. I think that was probably a mistake um, because it's just, uh, yeah, it's something that people can get into a routine and they know it's like going to your your Man United, you know, it's there. It's the same place. They're not, you know, apart from away games, but you know, it's there. And then you know how to get there, you know, whatever it is. But um, they were trying to make it a traveling show. And I don't think that worked as well. Yeah. I, I, was, I was half joking earlier when I said about <laughs> becoming FIH president. But do you think that potentially could be of interest or that maybe that's what we need is athletes in positions of, of real power and an opportunity to really enact change? Yeah, I mean, eventually, maybe I'll look it up, but I, I don't know, I, for sure, athletes, we need more athletes in there. And we did have some former athletes on the on the executive committee, but on the board. But um, again, it became a political game rather than for, for what they were there for. Um, even having the athletes committee on there, someone from there as well, it's, it's tricky because I'm not less, they want to say things and they want to make changes, but I'm not sure they get listened to, really. It's almost like tick the box. It's like having some women on, you know, on boards, not not FIH, but I mean, in general, like, oh, we've got the women on there, but we're not going to listen to them. It was like, it felt a bit like that. Um, it's a good step, but I think there's a lot more that can be done and how the voices can be heard. Um, you know, that, yeah, for sure, athletes need to be involved more. And we need to sense check with athletes too, a lot more, uh, figure out what, they want, and I don't know how now how many how many meetings they have with the athletes committee or how it's working, but yeah, for sure, um, something needs to change. Um, and that's a good example, like I said earlier, about this group of women who did who, athletes in America who've just taken it into their own hands and gone, look, we need to do it this way, because even like in general, like look, talking about diversity and inclusion and and companies tapping into that, they're tapping into it without actually talking to the communities. <laughs> They're trying to, you know, we have these words, pinkwash or, or whatever it is, greenwash as well for sustainability. But um, so people need to think a bit more and have the right people in the room. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's <laughs> quite a big thing, statement, I think, in general. Like that's what happens in, in many situations in business and, and in government as well. Um, they don't have the right people in the room and make decisions for people. And that's what happens in sport too. There's decisions being made for athletes and how, they should play and how where they should play and you know all these things without them being in the room and um, so yeah I think that's one thing it, again back to diversity you talk about transgender athletes like with world rugby there was n there was no transgender athletes in the room for those decisions um that were made uh they were there but I I, I did do a webinar with one person who was there but she, he wasn't allowed to speak 
you know, it wasn't yeah. actually at the table. It was just there. It was like observing was, was the word he told me. Um, so yeah, it's just, uh, actually listening to the athletes and, and having their voice there and not just going, Oh, but you're here, but that's it. <laughs> you can't say anything, <laughs> you know? So that's, I think that's how we need to make a change. Yeah. I think when, when you were in that FIH digital, um, I might have a title wrong, sort of media manager role, you did seem to do that. Um, I remember like the social sofa mm. seemed such a good idea. You know, like was it Georgie Parker and Dirkie Chamberlain? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. And these little things of putting the athletes in the centre, and I imagine they'll have had input, I, even if you didn't ask for it, I'm sure that Georgie would have offered it. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, to me, it seems like it's a really obvious thing to do, like to get the athletes more involved in these decision-making processes. Um, so with things like the social sofa, <clears throat> and because yeah. you, know, you really, to me, you had a huge impact in modernising the FIH mm. digital communications. Um, mm. It was a world away from what it is nowadays, and you had a huge part in moving it forward. Thank did you. you? How did you set about figuring out what little things you could do, which or what big things in this case you could do, which would have a big impact? It's a really good question. I don't think I just got. I kind of got thrown into that role as in I did my master's um, <clears throat> in sports management and I actually didn't want to work in FIH if I'd be completely honest and they know that too because I you know it wasn't the first protocol for me it was I was trying to look where else I could go I even went ahead and was going to go and do an internship in Investec in the UK um, working with hockey and cricket but I turned that down in the end but because um, I wanted to stay in Switzerland but then eventually you know I had a chat with with the, the marketing manager or director at the time. And she's like, just come and um, do your your um, internship, pretty much internship, but I was as a, a short-term contract. So it was good. I was really happy with that. So I was like, okay, cool. And I learned a lot from them, from the marketing team there. Like at the time was really great. Sarah Massey and Laura Hoyle, um, who were really like, they came from external, they came from corporate, other com big companies, and I learned a lot from them. And then it turned into a, a full-time job. And um, I think it's just social media was starting really to kick off then when I when I was there. Like really, like it was around for a long before, but sport was really coming in. And even just in general, people were really starting to, to post more personally as well. And I think it was a good time. And I just wanted to experiment. So we experimented a lot. We had we had quite a bit of budget as well, which we could do with marketing. So we were able to add spend and things like that. So that helped us to grow from the start. Um and and then we were able to spend money as well. One of my first things, I think my first couple of weeks I did a massive photo a video shoot and some of the hopefully some of the players listening will remember um Marcia Powman, for example, I brought them to the net we went to the Netherlands and I was in Amsterdam and we did this massive photo shoot and video shoot. It was so much fun. We were like in a yeah, it was just like something I was like, let's just do this. So I had the budget. So I was like, cool, let's do something different. So we went into like, I don't know if you've seen them, we were on a runway. Um, where the players were hitting the ball to see how fast they could hit it or how far they could hit it um, down a runway. Like it was just kind of thinking outside the box and thinking of content away from the game, which because yeah. I realized that that's what people were looking for as well. Fans were looking for really getting to know the players, thinking away from the game because that made them more human as well. That made them more relatable. That made them more, hey, they're quite cool. I want to follow them. Um, and they're doing other things than just playing hockey. Um, so that was like, the, one of the best experience I had and the best things we did was that photo shoot and video shoot because it was almost ahead of its time though I think um because 
looking back, it didn't get as much traction as I would have hoped, but it was something that really did make a change. And it made the players feel good. We paid the players, you know, there was different things like that. Like I was trying my best to bring in, like we, then I also brought in a ambassador program. So in the lead up to, when was it? It was a lead up to Rio, I think. Yeah. Um, I chose some athletes. I made sure that, you know, my inclusion side of me was like, let's get someone from all around the world. Um, so we had lots of different players uh, from all different countries and um, we paid them a little bit of a fee as well, you know, and it was for me trying to go, look, we need to pay our players. We need them to, we want them to give back and give themselves. We need to fairly compensate them for their work, right? Now, at the end, we didn't do a huge amount with them, but I still, they still managed to get their, their little contract for the year. And um, if I needed, I could call on them. And I think also one thing was probably to my uh, aid was that I was a former player. So I was able to talk to players differently to anyone else that was working there. Um, and previously, anyone else who tried to or work in that area I think because I had that former player thing, I played against a lot of the players as well. So it was easier for me to relate to them and to ask the right questions, to know when to ask, when not to, which is always a problem with media as well. It's like, maybe you don't need to act. Like I remember so many times pulling players away um, because I knew visibly they were upset and and nobody else could like kind of see that because I knew as an athlete that what they were feeling as well because maybe they maybe they won but they knew they hadn't played well because I watched every game right so I was much more aware of that and pulling them away from from interviews and and, and things like that so I think that the players respected that too they knew that they could come to me and it would be yeah very respectful and and I could um, know when to stop I guess and know when to ask and and know when to ask them for things as well and it became a really cool relationship with many of the players um and I missed that, actually. I was only talking to Sandra Bed the other day. We missed that side of it, um, meeting all the players. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Long answer, sorry. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, and I, I, it's a really important thing. Like, it's a topic that comes up a lot, is like the player welfare. Um, mm. And I remember at the World Cup, uh, I won't name them, but one of, the, one of the England players was devastated after they were mm. eliminated by the Dutch. Um, and but they had been probably the player of a match for, for England. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the media wants to talk to them and they're in floods of tears. And I just said to them, just take a minute and compose mm-hmm. yourself and then you can go and talk to them and they can wait for you. Um, but no one really seems to understand that the athletes are people. They're not just there to stand in front of a camera and have a chat. Um, yeah, they need to for sure. And, for and- sure. You know someone who's really good at that is Siobhan Maidley uh, for Euro hockey because she did that for me. I think that's probably where I picked it up as well. Like, She's doing an amazing job for Euro hockey as well, like countless hours and extra hours. And for her, like, yeah, she's been doing a great job there as well. Um, but she did that after my last game, uh, the Euros in uh, in Belgium. Um, we'd lost against Scotland and I was, I, I knew it was my last game. No one else did. Um, but yeah, she, she knew, she visibly could see that I was upset and I, someone wanted me for an interview and she said, look, just, step over here, get your tears out with me. She gave me a like, you know, come on, it's fine. And then I was able to do the interview. So it's such a good quality for for especially people, not necessarily the media, because media have their job to do, but the people around the athletes, um, FIH, Euro Hockey, whoever it is, uh, IOC, um, volunteers, people who are working very closely with them, for them to realize that is is such an important quality. Yeah, no, you're right. She, she's, I think, the work that Euro Hockey are doing is fantastic. Like the collaborations and mm-hmm. uh, what she's been doing is 
is very clear. The results okay. in the fact that interest in watching is growing and the fact that people are even able to take the time to screen the games in itself it shows yeah it's awesome the big impact so she's a great person for the game um <clears throat> so again with that that media hat on like, i was looking back at thinking about okay like when you were involved in this who were the big players mm. and now I've, i look back at, and i compare to now and it's very different in terms of the coverage they get so like off the top of my head anna flanagan was on top gear um, they had Ellen Hogue and Ava Huda were on Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Quek is, was hosting you know, sports uh, mm-hmm. coverage and, and she was on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And mm-hmm. I, so I had two questions. One is why, why do we as a sport seem to see that the women are getting much better exposure in terms of media stuff, but they're paid mm-hmm. less than the men? We know there's a disparity in the sport in pay and yet, mm-hmm. If you think of breakout people who really seem to propel the game forward, it's generally speaking mm-hmm. women. And then the second question um, was if you could sort of wave a little magic wand in hockey, um, and maybe we've discussed a little bit of this already, but what would it be to try and make these athletes, if you could you know, bring someone back from a past or something, what would you do that would make the athletes that a little bit more marketable? Three mm, really good questions. Um, I think with the women and, and the athletes who have done other things, like I, also was on a TV show when I was in before I, I retired. Um, probably because we have to do other things <laughs> because originally we're not being paid, right? So as much, um, I know I'm sure the girls in the Netherlands are a little bit, but it's still that they have to do something else and they have to think outside the, again, think outside the box, think outside what you're doing, what else can you do to get some money in um, and kind of utilizing the fact that you're quite, you know, a famous hockey player or you're you're quite a well-known hockey player. Um, I think that's probably what it is with the women. Um, but as you're as you say though, then it doesn't really correlate because then they're they're putting themselves out there and showing hockey, but then when they're actually playing hockey, they're not getting the same pay, which is odd. Um so I don't know how we can fix that. But yeah, I think it's good that we ho- hockey players think of other things apart from the sport too, because it keeps our mind um, you know being a bit different and changing and not just focusing on hockey um, because it's good for a future, right? If you get injured, you see many players get injured over the years and then they're like, what do I do now? Um, or, or me, for example, I started thinking about retiring quite a few years before. So I kind of had a bit of a plan. Whereas I think sometimes, especially in other sports, especially male sports, they can be so focused in, on that sport. Then they, when they retire or they get injured, it's a bit of a problem. Um but yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to answer properly, but um, what was your second question? <laughs> well, we've kind of covered it already a little bit, but it was just if you could wave a magic wand, what would it be? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I think fairly compensated for the amount of work they've put in for, for their, you know, for their sport, for their clubs, for their country. Um you know, you do see women getting, especially women getting awards, like in the UK, they get like OBEs and things like that, but that's not, you know, that's not going to feed them, right? That's not going to um, give them a career, their next career. So I think, um, yeah, if I could may- wave a magic wand, it would be to get a fair fair wage or a fair salary for, for what you're doing. And it is a job at the end of the day. And I think a lot of people don't realize that who aren't in the sport, in sport in general, the amount of of, of what you're giving up you know you're giving up your body like my body is is quite not so good right now and I of course it's because I train so much and um and probably 
overtrained as well because at certain times we were we didn't have that support where to tell us what to do in, in a better way you know if you have a good entourage around you you would have probably had a better a longer career potentially because the longevity of it it helps you to um to, to stay playing longer if you have really really good entourage around you and, and support and medical support and all of those things that i think we take for granted if you have them um because many many countries and many especially hockey many hockey players end up playing for years and years and years and they're wrecked after because they just haven't you know managed it better um because they didn't know because they didn't have the people around you didn't have the support they didn't have the financial support either um so if i could do that yeah i'm waving a magic wand also if i could wave a magic wand i would win the lotto and i'd definitely make a great center of excellence you know ireland for for the for the for hockey for men and women because i think this is another thing that happens in ireland it's like men get money then the women get money <laughs> it's like can we just be you know can we just try and make sure that we're a bit more equal and i've thought about that so many times that if i did win the lotto that i would definitely put some money back into the sport at home <laughs> yeah no, same, definitely. Well, that was a long, a long answer. Yeah, <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned about how you sort of started preparing yourself. You knew that you were going to retire. And I remember you, uh, I can't remember the name of the institution, sorry, but you, you did um, uh, a qualification, didn't you, for an institute? Yeah. Um, yeah, do you mind just explaining a bit about that? Because I know for some people, um, this is very athlete centric, this question, but that. Um, <laughs> That transition from being uh, either a full-time or a part-time professional mm. to then going into the working world mm. must be very traumatic for a lot of athletes. And you seem to have managed it very well in terms of how you prepared yourself and then how you, you've gone on once you did retire. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it wasn't that easy. Like I was trying to prepare myself um, probably four years before. Um and thinking about what I wanted to do, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So <laughs> I don't think I'll ever know that. Um, but so I did start thinking about it and I had a target of London. So when I was 30 to be, <laughs> my birthday was going to be in London as well. So it was like my 30th birthday in London Olympic Games. This is, what else could be, you know, any better than that? Uh, I'll just retire. Um, so that was kind of my target. And then I ended up staying a year after because our coach left and quite a few players left and, I was asked to just stay on for next year just to kind of help the, ease the kind of change. So, um, but then I found a master's in Switzerland. Um, so master's in sports management. Um, it's called AISTS um, and it's in Lausanne and it's uh, founded by the Olympic so the um, International Olympic Committee um, along with the University of Geneva and another university called epfl here in lausanne um and i just thought you know what i want to do more in sports i want i was a teacher at the time and i knew i wanted to do more i wanted to change my life a little bit i couldn't see myself as a teacher for the rest of my life as much as i loved it i just knew i wanted to try and try some other things so moved to switzerland did that masters and then started working for hockey and as i said i didn't really want to work for hockey because i want the last thing i wanted to do was, was be part of hockey and also when i got here i realized oh my god it's like the olympic capital of the world and i just didn't qualify for that like it, it was traumatizing a little bit um but the group of people in my class were amazing they loved sport they loved everything about it and they helped me to to get back into that sort of love of sport. And then, yeah, I worked for, for hockey for five and a half years. I loved that as well. It was a good transition for me too. anyone thinking about it because maybe you should work in sport because 
I still got to travel. I still got to go to events. I got to see the other side of events. And as much as it hurt me sometimes, because I still would have wanted to play, um, I was still having that, uh, what, that, that excitement of events and seeing, and I was behind the scenes. So I was with all the players. I was, especially when we went to Olympic games, I was incredible because I could go to all the events with the media pass. So I was like in the back of all the events, like seeing all these amazing athletes that I've watched on TV or, you know, things like that. It was really cool. Um, so if anyone's thinking there, maybe that's a choice you should do because you, you might miss going to events a lot, which I did, but I still had it because I was still traveling with hockey. So it was a good transition. And then into the corporate world, I thought, you know what, I've had too much of this traveling and too much of digital everything. I was, you know, running the whole show with that. So it was, it was a lot, it was constant. And I think it used to upset me sometimes when you get, you know, some comments about stuff and I'm like, oh my God, do you not know it's just me here on my own, <laughs> you know, trying to do everything. Um, I was on all the time all weekend if anything happens i had to reply i had to talk to the comms team and make sure that we had you know reply to something because there was a lot happened in the last couple of years that i was in fih um you know a lot of bad things a lot of bad comments a lot about you know so we were constantly on so it was really draining and so i then decided to go into corporate world and try that which was scary because i wasn't sure if i'd be able for it but um i had a great coach an executive coach who helped me to to go, no, you've got so many things from sport that you can bring into corporate and just be confident. And, and there, now I am. So, and, and I see it now, I really see it in my work that I'm doing all the things that come as an athlete, just doesn't matter what level you are, a hockey player, especially, we have such great values. We have such great communication skills. We have like all the things like you, we're saying, like we don't have much money in hockey. So we have to be very resourceful. We have to juggle a lot of things. And in corporate, it's just like, wow, that's what was your job before. And that was what you did before. And now it, all those skills are coming out. So it's really, really cool. I'm really enjoying it. And uh, did you want to sort of just explain a bit about what it is you're doing? And obviously, you've also you've recently launched your own podcast. It's been I think four or five episodes now. Yeah, for sure. I think it's yeah five, maybe five that are out. Um, we've recorded a few more, so we've got quite a few coming. So it's really really nice. Um, it's with a friend of mine I met and in, in Philip Morris where I'm working now. And, um, uh, we just got on straight away, and we did a lot of work with diversity inclusion within the company. Um setting up some some uh, LGBT um, employee resource groups and uh, trying to change the company a bit, trying to make them think about the employees. Um, and a bit, bit like what I'm talking about earlier, about the athletes stepping up and being the center, we're trying to really show that the employees really need to show the company how to, you know, to treat everybody and to make sure the culture is good for people to stay, for example. I think it's the same in sport. Um, you, we lose a lot of athletes by not having that athletes at the center because they just get sick of it right um so yeah i i met him and we just decided like i think it was last summer we were having a beer we just said why don't we make a podcast and then it started so we started that and we decided to launch it just yeah the other week um and it's talking about a lot of different things we have different things every month but a lot to do with transfer of knowledge uh, getting a job career changes you know don't be afraid because look how many times i've changed my career and it's okay you know it's it's 
it's fine now these, these days many people have a lot of different careers they don't just change jobs they actually change careers so we've learned that from all of our guests that they've all had many different hats I suppose um, and yeah and I'm doing a lot of work with diversity and inclusion as I said within the corporate world and that's kind of where I want to be going forward I think that's something that is my DNA I think since I was young um, being quite diverse family um, and, and then coming out as gay as well and, and trying to be influential in that space too uh, and trying to just help other people to to be okay with who they are and, and especially in corporate world like if we don't come as ourselves to work no matter who we are um, we're not going to perform and I think it's the same in sport right so if we want to be the best we can be we need to be ourselves um, and that could that's kind of what I'm trying to to do going forward and influence that side of things. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of brings on to the, the final sort of serious question I had, which was uh, <laughs> to do with, with the LGBTQ plus inclusion. And as a sport, uh, I think generally we pride ourselves on being inclusive. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe if we dig into the detail a bit more, there are areas we could really improve. And of course, there's some that we're really strong on, but there's also others that we we're not so good on. Um, where, where are your thoughts in terms of hockey as a sport and, and how it stands in, in terms of inclusion? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, as a gay woman, I think we're pretty good. I think I felt, always felt comfortable in hockey um, and many people do. And there's many out athletes now, um, women, female athletes in, in hockey. Um, and we always felt comfortable. I, I, I don't know many that I've had, well, I've never heard any that I've had such a bad experience, um, depending on the country, I suppose. But international level, I think it's been quite open. And I think we've always been quite open and good at that. But as you said, it's different between male and female, right? Um, there's not many gay male hockey players out. And I don't know the reasons that maybe there isn't many, or maybe they, I hopefully, and I think what you're trying to touch on here is that maybe they don't feel comfortable in our sport. And I, I, I hate that thought because I think that's really sad. I think hockey, as I've already mentioned, and we spoke about, we have great values. We are pretty inclusive. Now we do a lot of uh, work with um, disabilities as well. And, and I think this is one side that we need to really focus on and look at because clearly there's something wrong. I mean, it's the same in football when you look at a lot of female footballers are out, but not many male footballers. And why is that? And there's many reasons in football, but why in hockey? I don't, I don't understand. And I hope that, I really hope that it's not because they, they feel they can't come out. I hope the the reason is that there's not so many <laughs> instead, you know, rather than them feeling that they can't come out. Um, but if that is the case, we need to look at it. We need to try and understand why. Um, and we need to try and build a platform where people are comfortable um, uh, but it's very difficult to know if we don't know, right? <laughs> um, and we need to maybe really dig deep into that and do some surveys, for example, just try and figure out what's going on because you made we raised a really big point there that I didn't really think about before um, in hockey. So yeah, we need to we need to look at that. I don't know how we do it, but I'm sure we can find a way. Maybe again with the athletes committee, we can think about it or. Um, Euro hockey always pushing forward. Maybe that's something that they can look at as well. Um, they like to be ahead of, of things, which is great. So they really lead the way. So maybe that's something that they can think about. Yeah, I think definitely Euro hockey was there equally. It was, it was very well orchestrated. Uh, yeah. the, the people who they've chosen as ambassadors will speak very transparently about things, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, but yeah, it just seems 
we're not not quite where we need to be yet. But did you mm. did you find it? Uh, was it a major thing in when in terms of a reaction when when you came out about it? Because obviously hockey, it's known as a sport for a long time. I mean, we're we're roughly the same sort of age, and mm. uh, for me, I, I think it's always been quite open. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if the other did you find that you were welcomed and supported when you made that decision yeah I mean I was living in Ireland obviously and growing up in Ireland and it was um, still quite taboo when I when I did come out um, as 2021 but I mean yeah I think it yeah it's an interesting one it was it was fine like my parents were fine uh, my parents were great actually um my mom took a, a little bit of time for before I could she could meet anyone I was seeing or anything like that. But she still wasn't great from the start. And um, my whole family were um, club were great too. I mean, nobody ever. I never had anything too bad said bad said in my club. The only time I would have been hearing things from you know some hearsay and things like that, which I would have heard every so often, but more about oh, the club has loads of gay women on it. I'm not going to send my kids there. Um, same with cricket. We had the same in, in our cricket club. There was some people who said that we're not going to send our girls there because there's too many gay women on the team. So things like that, like, is just awful to hear. But at the same time, yeah, that's just narrow-minded. It's right. <laughs> they're not, not going to, your kid's not going to turn gay just because they're playing cricket with someone who's gay. Um, so that was like a kind of laughable at the same time, but then still like a bit like, whoa, okay, Ireland's still a little bit there <laughs> in that space. Um, and then, of course, we didn't have gay marriage until quite, re- you know, recently enough. Um, so it was still, yeah, it was still a bit um, up and down, I guess. But I never had anything really bad said to me, which was great. And I never felt uncomfortable in the international scene being out or anything like that and um, my teammates nothing I used to just get slagged a bit like about things but that was it like usual usual banter between players and you know but that was about it nothing nothing major so I was very lucky very lucky well that, that kind of wraps up the, uh, the the serious questions and it <laughs> it leads to just the one last one the one that we always ask people is if sure. they could sort of do like a five five aside with a sub of people they play <laughs> against a team of people they played against just wondered who you might pick i have a written down <laughs> <laughs> well originally well i never played against her but it was always my idol alison annan so alison annan obviously growing up was like amazing and then it was so cool because when i was working for fih i was able to actually meet her lots of times and actually build a relationship with her and she's a really cool cool lady and um yeah, I had some some fun banter with her, so definitely she'd be on my team. Um, can I, sorry, can I, I yeah. just want to ask. I mean, it's not often you get the opportunity to ask someone of your sort of caliber. What is it about Alison and Ang? She's just had her two hundredth win as as manager, and mm. from my point of view as a coach and as a, a member of a press, when I've seen her, she is just amazing. And like hearing what players have said um, about how she adapted and changed things, and like she's shortened team meetings from hours to like fifteen minutes. And they get just yeah. as much done. Um, yeah, what Sounds is it? like work, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that sets her apart for you? Wow, I think the rapport for sure, like whether they're players, like she seems to just have this great, yeah, this great relationship with them. She, she is actually what we all need to look at. She's clearly putting the athletes at a center 
like changing a meeting from an hour to 15 minutes is unbelievable for an athlete because especially when you're on tour like that you do not want to be sitting in a, in a meeting for that long you you should get your little homework as well like take away your clips to do yourself but like you shouldn't be sitting there in a meeting on a chair like normally crappy chair you know in, a, in, a, in some sort of ballroom or whatever it is and and you just don't want to be there um for that long because it's just it's tiring you know you're 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 training your brain is already be melted with the things you might have done wrong in a game for example or things you might have fixed in a in a training and you're already thinking a lot and, and trying to sit through an hour or two hours sometimes they can go on for um it, that's incredible and that's really putting the athlete at first um obviously because you need they need to know that you need a rest as well which not many coaches believe in too like that we need as much rest as we do um so i'm speaking like i'm still an athlete but um we did, you know, some coaches just don't get that. And I think she really gets the players. And um, as you said, adaptability, um, the change, being able to change like that is really, really incredible. Um, of course, Luciana Armour. <laughs> yep. um, again, had a great, like, great time with her. Like I played against her quite a few times in Argentina um, and then started having a good relationship with her uh from FIH moment and um, same thing because I could see she was at the end of her career. She really didn't want to do interviews. They kept asking, they always ask her the same questions. Even though it was in Spanish, I knew what was going on because it's like the same questions all the time, like things like really bad, like, and I could feel that she was just kept being brought back in and all of those things. So I, yeah, it built up a relationship with her as well to help her through that too. And, and we still still in touch. So she'd definitely be on my team. Uh, Natasha Keller. Yep. Another amazing player I played against. Uh, actually, the best memories from that time, my first event that I played properly, I was marking her. <laughs> and we drew one all with Germany. And in fact, they went on to win the gold medal at the Olympic Games in Athens. So we drew with them one all. We nearly wrecked our whole, nearly ruined our whole plans, you know, going to the Olympic Games. And I was marking her for most of the game. And I so obviously did quite a good job. I was pretty happy about myself. Um, and then, and I played against her as well in um, Germany when I played there too. So uh, she definitely won my team. Uh, Delfina Marino, so another Argentinian, another good friend as well now. Uh, same thing, have have met her many times. Um, played against her a bit, um, but then more, I guess, saw her more as, as working for FIH. So she definitely won my team. Just her skills are incredible. Um, her mindset as well is incredible. Um, and Maddie would be my goalkeeper, Maddie Hinch. Because yep. she's so awesome at one-on-ones, and I think if you said it's five aside, so I need someone who's going to be good at that, right? <laughs> so for sure, for sure, she'd be on my team too. Um, there's many others, like uh, even some of the Irish players. Like I definitely, I think Shirley McKay for for sure, because especially if it's five aside, she'd be like so strong, so low all the time. I think she'd definitely be on my team too. But there's many, many players like my club players. I mean, I can't. It's very hard to pick. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they're they're probably my top picks. Um, yeah, many of them. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it, Brendan Creed and uh, Phil Roper were basically having uh, sort of a crisis trying to figure out who they'd pick. Uh, it's hard. Yeah, it got so bad that Brendan Creed accidentally picked a British person for his foreign team um, because he was panicking so much. Um, but no, thank thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat. Um, oh, you're uh, awesome. Thank your, you for having your me. Podcast called Higher, isn't it? Yes. That's uh, H I G H E R. 
Yes. On, uh, get on Instagram. I think Instagram is Go Hire Podcast is the yeah. is the um is the handle. So yeah, there you go. It's worth, worth giving it a listen. It's been fantastic uh, for me listening to it on the career stuff. It's all top tips. So uh, yeah, thank you very <laughs> much, and uh, listeners. Thank you, Simon. Yeah.